Hello and welcome to Valley West Cinemas. I'm your host Aaron and this is the podcast where we take a group of related films and eliminate all but three. Today I'm joined by Sean. Hello Sean. Hey Aaron, it's nice to be back. Yeah, you were here previously for the John Landis and Vic Morrow true crime episode. So this is uh, number five. And that Star Wars no, episode... No, and Landis. Sorry, and Landis. So this is number six then. Oh, wow. I guess I must, I must like coming here or something. <laughs> I don't know. I have my list and my red pen ready because today we're discussing the films of Michael Bay. Now, Sean, what first comes to mind when you hear the name Michael Bay? Fast edits, action, and adrenaline. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. And, and Michael Bay, I always credit as one of the first people to really use shaky cam in their movies. And it's pretty common, and I'm sure somebody before him used it. But I remember seeing The Rock, and it was like, especially in the Ferrari San Francisco chase scene, it was like the camera was on a spring, and I hated <laughs> it. Just put it on a tripod. But we're so used to it now, it's almost quaint. His films always have a very sun-bleached, sort of sun-drenched look. There's always sunlight through an American flag. Lots of women's midriffs or upskirt sort of shots, like you see the camera below them kind of looking up at their really low jean shorts. I don't know if sexism is quite the right word, but he's very leering with his camera. I believe in the film world that's called the male gaze. And he is the master of it. And in fact, there was a big fight between him and Megan Fox because she was in his first two Transformers movies. She called him a Nazi and quit. That's why she's not in part three. And it took several years for them to repair their relationship before she was in his Ninja Turtles reboot that he produced. That's interesting because I thought that she was not in the Transformers films because of a falling out with Steven Spielberg. Is that not correct? I'm wondering if it has something to do with her using the term Nazi because Spielberg okay. being Jewish and Nazis being actual bad people versus just a pushy, loud filmmaker. That could be. It probably knows a little bit of all of the above. Michael Bay definitely has a humor, too. His movies are known for, well, for one, of course, the practical effects, the explosions, the, right. the booms, as Tara says. He uses a lot of CG life forms. I don't know if the right word is there, but like the Transformers, obviously, they're CG. Right. But when it comes to car chases and things blowing up, like they destroyed a whole little town on the side of a hill in Bad Boys 2. They blew up houses. They blow right. up bridges. When you watch stuff blowing up in a Michael Bay movie, it's usually a real thing, not a model that's blowing up, which I appreciate. I, I like that he doesn't always use CG, at least for the explosions. The Transformers are going to be CG, but the explosions are going to be real, which is cool. But he's also known for kind of having a rude sense of humor, like a very immature. I don't like using maturity as a criticism, but his humor is very borderline gross. Like locker room humor. Oh, God, that's a road I don't know if we want to go down. <laughs> um, but no, things like in the second Transformers movie, when Devastator forms from a bunch of construction equipment, the wrecking balls from cranes are below the hind legs of Devastator. It looks like two testicles banging together. Or like the one Transformer that humps Megan Fox's leg. Or the multiple shots of actual dogs humping in the Transformers movies. Hey, you know, I had forgotten about the transformer testicles until you just reminded me but i do remember seeing that and thinking what is he trying to do yeah. here and we'll get into the specific films that we're discussing today but also in the second transformers movies he has the twin characters that are very seemingly racist the way they talk the way they look they are very much probably very much a rude stereotype but he does that with a lot of his movies where the humor is just immature like there's a whole sequence in one of the bad boys movies where People think Martin Lawrence and Will Smith are talking about the two of them having sex with each other. That can be funny, sure. I mean, we've all seen American Pie in similar movies, but when it's when it occurs so many times in his films, it's like, okay, why why are you doing this? What is going on here? <laughs> but his his sense of humor is very 
adolescent. He has a very adolescent sense of humor, and it's kind of one of the criticisms that, that he gets. Other than the leering camera, people usually have a real big problem with his humor. I tend to like him, or I should say I like his films. I don't know if he's a terrible tyrant in real life or not, but his movies are pretty good. Yeah, the way, I, the way that I always describe Michael Bay is if you think about going to like an amusement park, right? Like mm-hmm. on a roller coaster or what have you. And then it's sort of like the trip to the amusement park is really fun in the moment and it's really fun to experience it, but it's not something that you take with you and remember for a long period of time afterwards. There are some exceptions and we'll get into his movies, but it's almost like he's a kind of in the moment, fun, thrilling filmmaker. But when it comes to a deep story that connects with you, you don't always have that to carry with you and remember and look back on it as fondly as you might with other directors. He is more of an action popcorn director. Yes. He has made one attempt, maybe two, depending on how you look at it, but one major attempt at trying to make maybe an Oscar play, and that was Pearl Harbor. And so the films we're discussing today are Bad Boys, Bad Boys 2, The Rock, Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, The Island, Transformers, Pain and Gain, 13 Hours, Six Underground, and Ambulance. So the Bad Boys movies were in our Will Smith episode, and Armageddon was in the Bruce Willis episode, 13 Hours was in the Jim vs. Dwight episode, so you've already heard my thoughts on them, so we're going to go ahead and start with what Sean thinks of these four first. First off, can we talk about the logic behind leaving the rest of the Transformers movies off? Because he did direct sure. more than just the first one. Yeah, so. he directed all five of them, he only did not do Bumblebee. Right. The short answer is, I don't want to talk about them. <laughs> it's my show. The Transformers sequels are borderline interchangeable. You can say that one of them has the dinosaurs in it. One of them has Mark Wahlberg in it. I mean, he's, he's in two of them. But like, there are ways in sort of broad strokes to separate them. But kind of like the Resident Evil movies, if I say to you or any random person, which Transformers movie is Dark of the Moon? Part three? Part three, you're right. Okay. But no, okay, so you got that right. But we're different folks. But most people couldn't tell you which one is part two, which one is part three. They're very interchangeable. And if we went into it, sure, I would say part three is the best film. It has a calmer camera because he shot it in 3D. Because of 3D and the way our eyes work, you have to have longer shots. You can't edit as quickly. The end sequence, the 45-minute attack sequence on Chicago is awesome. I I have nothing else to say. That was, what, a minute and a half? My favorite Transformers movie, perhaps the only good one, in my opinion, was Bumblebee. Bumblebee was but really good. That is not a Michael Bay film. I love the cartoon, but in my opinion, it wasn't faithful to the source material. All of the Transformers don't look the same as I remember them as a kid. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's well, one of the things that Marvel does so well, I think, that the fact that people love those films because they remember how Captain America looked. They remember how Groot looked. They remember how all these characters look, and they look, for the most part, the same in the movies as they did in the comic books. There are some exceptions, obviously, and there are some minor modifications, but they did a really good job at translating their look and feel from the comics to the films for Marvel movies. For Transformers, that did not happen. They, look, they looked like robots, large pieces of metal that, that didn't have the same colors, the same pop, the same, you know, make them 80s cars. That's what they were. And right. That's okay. Just do that. You, they could have pulled that off, I think. So, so I think that was a poor decision to sort of not honor the, the source material in that way. Then as the movies evolved, if they wanted to make deeper iterations of those characters and make them more advanced or newer vehicles, then by all means, go for it. But start off 
where we all remember and know and love them. In terms of the action sequences, all of that seemed to be okay for me. It just, they, they do all kind of blend together. All right, well, we'll get back to part one specifically in a bit. But the Bad Boys movie, so Bad Boys Part 1 was Michael Bay's first film, and a few years later he did Part 2. I liked the Bad Boys films. Uh, I actually liked Part 2 better than Part 1. Mm-hmm. And Part 2 is actually one that I saved in the Will Smith episode. It was one of my three. Oh, perfect. Yeah. yeah, I think Bad Boys 2 is, it's really good. It really fits the time period as well. Like the whole, uh, it captured the rave scene at the time. Um, and maybe, maybe that just comes from the fact that I was kind of got into that at, when, at that point in my life as well. Um, but really kind of highlighted the the not-so-bright side of that. And uh, there's some really good original comedy in there. It was a little more personal for me because I felt like some of the things that happened I could relate to. You like, could relate to stuff in like people Bad Boys 2? People ODing on the f- dance floor. Not me, obviously, but it was interesting. It was definitely something that I I hadn't been involved in myself, but I'd been around that scene and saw some of those things happen and remember kind of thinking, wow, they really uh, captured that and, and, and highlighted why it was such a dangerous place, space to be in. It resonated in that way. Um, not that I had done that myself, to be clear. Please don't cut that part of it. <laughs> uh, but I'd been around that scene, right? Part two just stuck with me. And then the action sequences were just really good. Mm-hmm. This is probably one of Will Smith's better comedic performances. Since then, and he did more action, more serious type roles. But uh, this one, he was able to mix both of them together, and I think it paid off. And Bad Boys 2 was after Independence Day and Men in Black, so he had the Will Smith charm and charisma that we all knew about. He was a worldwide superstar when 2 came out. And I do think Bad Boys 2 is a perfect Michael Bay film. It has all of Michael Bay's trappings. It has the camera spinning around a room during a shootout. It's very Michael Bay, but everything is turned to just the perfect degree. Like, it's the best-made version of what Michael Bay can and has done. It's not the most complex story, but man, the action is cool. They built a whole freeway just for an action sequence in that movie. They built a freeway. That's how much clout Michael Bay had back then. I feel like Bad Boys 2 trademarked the classic slow motion exit from the car with guns drawn. Yeah, and the camera (laughs) looking up at them all sweaty because it's Miami. Everyone's hot in Miami. Right. Comparatively though, to part one, like part one came out in 95. That's how long ago it was. Michael Bay was a commercial and music video director. This was an era where, I don't know if it really happens as much today, but so many movies had their directors picked out from music videos. David Fincher did Alien 3 and later 7, of course, he did music videos. And so they became very visual filmmakers. It was a great era in the 90s for that. Michael Bay had done a lot of Victoria's Secret commercials. So again, the male gaze, he did the D Vinyl's I Touch Myself music video. And he got, of course, Bad Boys. And Will Smith and Martin Lawrence were coming off of two hit sitcoms. I don't want to say it was unusual, but it wasn't the most common thing for sitcom stars to do action movies. The most obvious example is Bruce Willis coming off of Moonlighting and doing Die Hard. And when Die Hard trailers came out, everyone's reaction was, that guy? Why'd you put that guy in this? It would be like casting Chandler in Die Hard. Or Chandler from Friends. (laughs) Sorry, that's the reference. Sitcom stars, like, they don't usually do action movies, especially while those shows are still around. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was still on. I think Martin was still on when Bad Boys came out. Yeah. And did you know that Bad Boys, (laughs) the first Bad Boys movie, was developed for John Lovitz and Dana Carvey? I did not know that. I have no idea what that movie would have been. I kind of want to see that alternate reality film, but Bad Boys is good. 
It's not great. I don't really have any complaints about the first Bad Boys, but part two is just a perfect blend of everything Michael Bay is capable of and what he has become known for, good and bad. It's just everything to the exact right degree. I a thousand percent agree with you. Bad Boys 2, it was it was good in similar ways that Pain and Gain was good, that he, he blended that comedy. Mm-hmm. Granted, Pain and Gain was a little more on the comedy side than it was on the action side. He blended both comedy and action and those epic sequences that, that we're all so familiar with with Michael Bay. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you said that. I'm not ready to go into Pain and Gain, but that is the other example where I usually say, this is good Michael Bay. This is what he can do right. when it's not stupid. And when it's balanced just right with characters and plot, it doesn't just come off as juvenile. But as far as Bad Boys 1 and 2, are you hanging on to both or either of them? For the I'm going to hang on to part two, but I'm going to let go part one. Part one was a great kickoff. And I think Will Smith did do good comedies afterwards. Obviously, Hitch was a good movie. Um, I don't but... know if I would agree with obviously Hitch was a good movie. <laughs> okay, maybe not obviously, but his reputation changed after Bad Boys. It did. And his reputation changed after the Oscars this past year, too. Yeah. So then Armageddon. Armageddon was in our Bruce Willis episode. I did not save it, but Tara did. I thought Armageddon was a great film. Really fun to sort of see. I, I believe it was like one of the first movies that came out with the whole asteroid thing. No, actually, Deep Impact was only two months earlier. Yeah, but they were both kind of set that that precedent in terms of seeing that on screen. Oh, you mean the concept? Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant having competing movies with the same concept, kind of like Volcano and Dante's Peak. It's a classic example of there were a couple of scripts floating around Hollywood, and one studio bought one, and the other one bought the other or something. <laughs> I don't know how that works exactly. Or but... how there were two Truman Capote movies at the same time, one with Sandra Bullock, one with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Right. And actually, it's happening this year. Disney's Pinocchio with Tom Hanks. And at Christmas, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is coming out as well. Armageddon, uh, I feel like I remember going to see it and loving it when I was there. And I still, it's one of those films that does sort of live in my memory banks um, as a good movie. Looking back at it now as I'm more of an adult, I look at it more as like a so far out there sort of concept in terms of how they dealt with the problem mm-hmm. <laughs> that right. I don't well like we can't really argue realism too much like, I know I know the movie establishes know, the universe when it comes to Michael Bay he seems to be well maybe I shouldn't say that I was going to say he targets realism a little more but that's he doesn't yeah, necessarily if you look at the poison gas balls in the rock you know that's not exactly true maybe yeah. but I feel like um putting people on rocket ships and flying like spaceship style in that short of a period of time when we can barely get back to the moon again, if we can even do it again, it, I don't know. See, <laughs> my adult brain is getting in the way of my love for that film as, as a teenager. So I can't get hung up on the core concept of the film. Like if your problem is why would Superman land on earth? Like, okay, you're, you're just gone. You're not, you're <laughs> right, not going to like this right. movie. And so if the concept is send drillers to a comet, that's the concept. Maybe this is a better way to put it. I think, like with a superhero film or even Transformers or what have you, I'm, you know, I suspend disbelief altogether because I'm watching a popcorn comic book flick. I think maybe the film that I wanted to see or still want to see is a film about an asteroid and what would really happen. Oh, that's depressing. I mean, there's Don't Look Up, which I've, that, cut from, I've seen that. I've and cut that, that from that a gets previous close. episode. With Armageddon, though, it does have some of that humor issue, like making Steve Buscemi's character a pedophile. I don't remember that. Which, granted, I'm not saying you can't make those jokes, but it's just. 
another example of yet again Michael Bay falling back on yeah, certain kinds of humor. Yeah, didn't Michael Bay do that in one of the Transformers movies? He didn't. It wasn't a joke, but he brought the topic up. He and did brought up in the, the fourth, Texas law in the fourth movie. The movie grinds to a halt just so a character can explain why it's okay for him to have sex with a seventeen-year-old. The guy holds up a laminated card with the Texas statute on it from his wallet, and you see a full-screen close-up of the text. And it's just so he can justify why this 20-something character is dating a 17-year-old. When, right or wrong, the movie doesn't need to explain it. You know, don't stop just to say, but it's okay. In the film, Mark Wahlberg's wife has died at some point in time in the past. And he's raising their daughter together. They show a picture of Mark Wahlberg with his wife and the baby when his daughter was born. And the woman in the photo auditioned for a film that we made and they told you she's going to be in this new transformers movie yeah they played it off like this is why you got to hire her because she's going to be in it lo and behold we see the movie and she's literally just a model in a she's just in a photograph photo. yeah just in a <laughs> photograph correct no dialogue no flashbacks just in a photo with armageddon i do think it's a good film it is a solid enjoyable watchable film there are dumb parts like the infamous animal cracker scene for years and years and years, people bashed how stupid the scene is where the Aerosmith song is playing in the background and Ben Affleck is playing with animal crackers on a close-up of Liv Tyler's exposed midriff. <laughs> you guys can't see it, but I'm throwing my arms in the air because this is, you know, again, Michael Bay. He likes women's stomachs. I love the line, you brought a gun to space. Yeah, that was classic. <laughs> I do like Armageddon. I don't think it's going to survive this episode, but I'm not crossing it off yet. I'm not going to cross it off either, and I'm in the same boat. I don't know that it'll survive. There's some pretty stiff competition coming up. So hanging on to Armageddon for now, and the other one that was in a previous episode is 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. Yeah, I, uh, 13 Hours uh, to me was just a great film because I feel like you take the Michael Bay action and put it into a sort of realistic environment and really frame it after something that actually happened. Now... I haven't done the research to dig into how accurate it was as to what really, I know things are, are always... We can assume sort of, it's not true to life, right. which you is up, fine. You up the ante a little bit when you're making it for Hollywood, right? It's like Pocahontas. If, right. you're, if you're going to see an animated Disney film for realism, you're the problem. And right. If you're going right. to see a Michael Bay movie for uh, explanation of terrible events in the Middle East... Right. Yeah, no, no. It's, right. it's, yeah, I, I think when I first watched that film... It mentions it as a true true events, I think, in the trailer and in the film itself, but I didn't put a lot of credence in that. I was more watching it because it just it felt more visceral. The action sequences, sort of in a military setting. I don't know that we had actually seen a lot of that from Michael Bay before, and I felt like that style just fit. So the action sequences stuck out, the stakes stuck out, and the story just felt real. And I'm not saying that from the perspective of it was based on a true story. It just felt more like was happening in the real world. Mm -hmm. It felt more like a war film. Well, it is, though, obviously. Right. But yeah. even though it's not like a, you know, Saving Private Ryan or something, but it just it felt like, which I think is the greatest war film of all time, just to be clear, that is Saving Private Ryan. But it just felt more real. The action sequences fit the story. They didn't they didn't jump over the story and mm -hmm. become more important than the story. Uh, so for me, 13 hours, I'm definitely gonna keep on my list for now. That was that was one of the better films of the last decade, I think. And I did tease earlier that Michael Bay, in addition to Pearl Harbor, did attempt what could be considered an Oscar play with another film. And that film is 13 Hours. That's the one where he 
may or may not have been influenced by the success and awards for Black Hawk Down because both 13 Hours and Black Hawk Down are very, very similar in that they are about a true life military event. So a true life story, an opportunity to win awards because people like true life stories. And also with Black Hawk Down, which was directed by Ridley Scott, there's very little character. Each person in it has one little quirk, like one character likes tea, one character is a brute, etc. Very simplistic characters, only supported by the charisma of the actors playing them, of Eric Bana, of Ewan McGregor, and in 13 Hours is John Krasinski, and I forget the name of the other guy. Both of these are essentially one long action sequence. 13 Hours really dives right into it. It just starts where a U.S. embassy is being overrun and needs to be evacuated, and they need to send in soldiers to get the U.S. citizens out. And that's really it. The film, as the title suggests, covers 13 Hours, and the film presents it like Sean was saying, Maybe not necessarily true to life, but realistic enough to where as a viewer, you can see that this is what happened, or you can interpret it as what happened, whether valid or not. But either way, it seems realistic, which adds an edginess to it. And because of that, it's not shot in his usual way. It doesn't have a spinning camera. There are no flourishes. Oh, that's a good word. Michael Bay doesn't use any flourishes to exaggerate it, to make it cool, air quotes, cool. None of his humor is there because next to nobody says anything. It's just one long, very well-made action sequence. There's nothing else to grab onto. There aren't any characters you love because if they don't say anything or do anything, you can't tell me that, oh man, I love John Krasinski's character in that film. You can say you liked him in it, but there's no character there. It's just, he's a face holding a gun, you know? <laughs> right. But it's but it's so well put together though. There are accusations of racism for the film. It never got in that much trouble, but I can't decide what is or isn't offensive. So I'm not going to defend the film or accuse it. I, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is there. Yeah, it's funny how you, you say that because Top Gun 2, that's how they overcame that. They just put everybody in black helmets and didn't right. really and address Top Gun, <laughs> And Top Gun but 2, they never say the name of the country either. If you're going into a country with a certain ethnicity that... It's about presentation. It is a fine line. Tara could probably explain this better than I could. But you can say this is true. This is what happened. I don't know. It's a fine line. It's really hard to say because as a viewer, you can't help that you are watching this unfold this way. Is he exaggerating something? Just as much as the heroes don't have any character, the villains don't have any character either. It's just war sucks. It's just it's war just, sucks. It's what yeah. it is. But looking at today's films, we have such a huge issue with making anyone the bad guys. For box office reasons, we can't make China the bad guy anymore. And I say anymore because in the 80s and 90s, China and Russia, because of the Cold War and communism, China and Russia were the bad guys in so many movies. Yeah, didn't they, um, for the new version of Red Dawn, they went back and changed the Chinese flags to North Korean flags? Yeah, they <laughs> shot the entire film with China as the bad guys, which again itself was a change from Russia from the original Red Dawn film. And then after they finished the film, they used computer animation to change all of the flags and insignias from Chinese to North Korean. We're not worried about making money in North Korea. Right. Yeah. But exactly like... <laughs> I'm going to keep uh, Armageddon on my list. for now. Oh, we're still talking about Armageddon? <laughs> uh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> we're on 13 hours yeah i'm gonna i think it was a great film um i can see the argument perhaps on the racism and i that, I, very, that may be a valid point that may be a valid argument yeah that's I don't know far too complicated for, yeah. a, for a film podcast i don't know the answer to that <laughs> all right so i'm hanging on to 13 hours as well i don't think i'm gonna save it but i'm gonna hang on to it okay let's go to one we haven't talked about on the show before and it's an easy cut for me michael bay's netflix movie six underground starring ryan reynolds an actor who Failed upwards and is somehow rich and famous. <laughs> I 
I love Ryan Reynolds. I don't. I think he's a good actor. Yeah, but name one character he has ever played in any movie that wasn't Ryan Reynolds. That the didn't new have the time smarm. travel one that he did on Netflix. I watched only half of it. Where he comes back and he befriends a boy. He's from the future. Oh, the Adam Project. Yeah, he didn't seem so Ryan Reynolds in that. And I could even say Green Lantern. That sense of humor wasn't there. It was there. Yeah, Green Lantern was, was there. Yeah, well, Green Lantern was terrible. Very forgettable. I yeah. watched it one time but, in the theater, and that was it. But life, I'm gonna. I would say Six Underground just. On its own, it's a very forgettable film. I watched the whole thing. I can barely remember what happened. Yeah, it is. The- <laughs> it's just, it's the craziest thing. It's like a, it's, I think that he went overdrive on the fast cuts. Six Underground is a perfect example of Netflix throwing a ridiculous amount of money at someone and saying, just make whatever you want. It is uncontrolled Michael Bay. So when we talk about these things that he reigned in perfectly for Bad Boys 2, he is off the rails with Six Underground. Agreed. The action is difficult to follow. The characters are stupid. The humor is awful. It's just an all-around trash movie. And to be clear, though, it's probably something that you could sit down and watch right now without that much of an issue. It's not offensively bad. And you mentioned Green Lantern. Ryan Reynolds' own movie, Green Lantern, is a worse film. That's a bad film. Six Underground is more watchable than that, but it's still pretty bad. You watch this movie and realize how much money they spent, and then you think about some child starving on a street somewhere. Right. It's that kind of excess. Like when you hear about some rich guy spending $2 million on like a gold-plated toilet seat. <laughs> so, so it's kind of like that. It's a very comfortable toilet seat. <laughs> you know. Just to double back on my opinion of Ryan Reynolds, I like him as a person, I guess. I like Ryan Reynolds' personality that he has used to build his career. I like that charm, the asides. Ryan Reynolds is a likable guy, but the problem is, is as a person who watches films the way I do, it's the same character over and over again. He's just being himself. Whether it's the hitman's bodyguard, life, Deadpool, Green Lantern, Free Guy, Blade Trinity, he's always playing himself or what we interpret to be the Ryan Reynolds personality. Just once, I want to see Ryan Reynolds play a bad guy who doesn't crack jokes. I want to see him play a Hans Gruber. I want to see him play a dad who cries. I was so burned out by the time Deadpool 2 came out that I just don't care anymore. And I'm not saying he's not funny. He still makes me laugh. I liked Free Guy. I did. But for crying out loud, just do something different. Yeah, no, I uh, I agree. I, there are, I think he does have another layer there that we've We've seen in bits and pieces here and there, but certainly Six Underground was not the movie to bring that out of him. Yeah. We, <laughs> so, I mean, and we didn't even talk about the plot. Just from a Michael Bay perspective, it's just big, loud, over-the-top nonsense. It is the worst of Michael Bay's tendencies. The story wasn't captivating. I was just watching it. Like I just kind of gave up on the story, I think, like mm-hmm. maybe half hour in, 20 minutes in, and just watched it for all the action sequences. That's really the the extent of it. And maybe that's what... Michael Bay was going for like, hey, this is my movie. I've got, I can do whatever I want. I've got. Oh, he certainly was. A checkbook, and then I'm going to make it. I'm going to give you guys some cool stuff to look at. And he delivered on that. I often make a negative comparison to McDonald's for certain movies. <laughs> so imagine, like, imagine if you haven't had McDonald's for a couple years, and you have a craving for chicken McNuggets, and you go and get a five piece and a soda, and oh yeah, that's pretty all right. That was nice. They hit the spot. I remember this flavor. Six Underground is eating 40 Chicken McNuggets. (laughs) Halfway through, you're going to regret ever starting. And by the time it's over, you just want to barf. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, that's a great great analogy. 
Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and cross Six Underground off my list. Oh, absolutely. So let's go ahead and double back to Transformers since you did have a bit to say about that anyway. We are only discussing in detail part one. We're not going to get into the weeds with the sequels. And as Sean said, he would have crossed them all off anyway, and so would I. But we will talk about part one because that was the originator of the franchise, at least in live action format. When Michael Bay was announced as the director, I thought that was a great choice. To have him attached to such a franchise and a property was exciting back then because Armageddon was only a few years before. I just love Transformers. I am a Gen 1 fan, Generation 1, OG 1985-86 Transformers cartoon with Optimus Prime having the sort of blocky look because they animated them to look like the toys. They have to move in and change and transform, you know, just like the show because the whole point is to sell toys. And then Michael Bay made the movie. Like you said, the characters don't look like their original characters and designs can change. We've said before, if we liked it, we wouldn't complain. (laughs) If Transformers 1 was absolutely amazing, maybe I wouldn't care. The special effects are incredible. The way they took all the actual parts, like they scanned and actually represented every single true part in a car. So when you see the Transformers transforming, that's essentially a real car. But it also looks awful. looks like junkyard trash getting blended together because there is so much going on. It's too much. When they went to part three, they did simplify the designs a little bit. But in part one, it's difficult to tell them apart. Jazz who is a main character in the original cartoon, gets torn in half, and I didn't even realize it was Jazz getting killed. It's so hard to see what's going on. It just didn't feel or look like Gen 1 Transformers. Mm -hmm. And I think from my perspective, if they wanted to get to that iteration of them later in the movies, that would have been okay if you show us the Gen 1. Change over time. Yeah, show us the Gen 1 first, start there. And then you can evolve them beyond Mm. that if you want to. Well, the best part of the Bumblebee movie, which is pretty good, it's basically Short Circuit or E.T., but with a Transformer. Right. The best part is the seven, eight minute flashback in the beginning that shows Cybertron and all of the characters look like the original animated characters. Soundwave looks like Soundwave. Optimus looks like Optimus. And it's incredible. Like that sequence at the beginning of Bumblebee just made my nerd blood scream in joy. You know, it's so freaking cool. Yes. I don't know if it's a, if it is, the ego of the director wanting to make it their own so bad that they want to change the lore or change what it looks like because they think they can do better. I think it does a disservice to it and fans see through that. You're going to lose a certain scope of the fan base that wants what right. they grew up with. This happens all the time with video game movies, but they take movie studios, they take a known property like Transformers or G.A. Joe, you know, And they want to make a movie because we all like money. And then they change it and they keep changing it. And it baffles my mind because if there's something that people like that's famous and you want to make a movie to capitalize on that fame, why would you not make a movie of the thing that you're buying? (laughs) Yeah, I don't. That's I I don't know. Is it budget or is it ego or is it both? I think it's ego. It has nothing to do with budget because good Lord, they spent so much money on these. It's not budget at all. There are instances of musicals like Cats. I know they did that for a couple songs where... They changed the songs. Why would you make a movie of a musical and change the songs? It's a musical. Obviously, people like and know the songs. Why would you change them? That's a great question. I I think it is ego. It comes down to the directors want to create something of their own. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can't say that I blame them for that, but then go do your own thing. And you can make it your own. Obviously, the style of the first Transformers movie is very Michael Bay. The action sequences, well, spoiler alert, I don't like the Transformers movies. I like when they come out. I look forward to seeing them and I'm always disappointed. But the action sequences, even today, are amazing. I could watch those right now. 
It does have that great sequence where the Decepticon helicopter attacks the army base. When you first see it transform, you first hear that noise, that the noise. Yep. That's cool. He is capable of making cool, intense scenes, but I don't know. Transformers 1 is just a huge letdown. And it's like an hour and six minutes into the movie before Optimus shows up. It could have been done so much better. I had much higher hopes. Now, to be fair, this is not by any means the first 80s toy line movie that has disappointed though. Uh, Masters of the Universe, if you remember that, mm-hmm. the Dolph Lundgren yeah. uh, version. That was now that might have been a budgetary thing as to why. Oh, they that was canon. That was absolutely budget. For yeah, Masters why of the they Universe. couldn't get it yeah. to to be what we what we wanted. But it must be a hard nut to crack uh, until Kevin Feige came along and cracked it perfectly yeah. with the Marvel Universe. But yeah. other than that, yeah. At the end, Megatron wakes up and he basically gets Darth Mauled. He shows up, he dies. That's it. And he is. The Joker, he is the big bad. He is the main villain of the entire franchise. And yes, there's Unicron and other villains, but he is the big one. It's Megatron. And they just have him wake up, fight, die. That's it. It just doesn't make sense. And also, too, it's just not satisfying to have your villain only introduced at the end for one fight and to die. Right. How is that interesting? Why do they spend so much time on the Witwickies and that annoying family? It's called Transformers. That's, yeah, that's very true. (laughs) I don't know. Speaking of the Transformers, though, there is a connection to the island. So we'll jump over to that. Okay. The island is the Scarlett Johansson and Ewan McGregor movie. Yep. Where Sean Bean shockingly plays a bad guy. (laughs) And it's kind of a ripoff of this book called Spares. The concept is there's a place on the planet where we have spares or clones of ourselves living so that when we need parts for health like a transplant we have an exact copy that lives somewhere but they are real living human beings so of course they're going to die on the island they are told that there's like this lottery contest like oh you won you get to go to the special place in reality they're being taken and killed because their real life counterpart needs something from them scarlett johansson and ewan mcgregor are kind of childlike because they don't know the real world it's kind of like a truman show scenario they only know the world on the island they kind of discover what's going on and they try to escape You would think with such a grand sci-fi Logan's Run kind of story, he could have upped the science fiction. He could have made it more about the moral, because obviously there's a big moral question there. And instead of answering it with any type of maturity, it's a Michael Bay movie. It feels like it's a movie that could have been much better as a psychological type thriller or a sci-fi kind of questioning uh, to your point, the morality behind it and having the the characters kind of figure out what's happening and how they struggle with that in their mind. What the right answer is, because if right. they're clones, why can't we do this to them? More of a character piece, if you will, to sound like Where's the soul? Are they real people? Does right. it matter? Why can't we just grow another one of ourselves? Yeah. Even if they are conscious and aware, why can't we just grow one and kill it when we need something? Yeah, it feels like it could have been a better sort of character type drama. Yeah. Well, psychological man. thriller more so than a big action epic. Yeah, imagine if Christopher became. Nolan had done it or Spielberg. Right. Um, so I'm going to cross off with that perspective. Great concept, but executed going down the wrong path. Yeah, it's of one of those movies film. where you watch it and it's like, why is this an action movie? Right. But the tie, the tie to Transformers, though, and this is super rare, at least for me, I have not noticed this in very many films, but Hugh McGregor is on a truck on a freeway and the truck is hauling train tires i don't know what the word would be but it's the axle and giant metal wheels for a train so giant heavy barbell looking metal things the size of a car basically okay he undoes the latching and they go tumbling and the car is chasing them hit them and just get smashed and it's great wreckage because it's real because michael bay likes to actually destroy things 
they took that moment. It's in one of the Transformer sequels, I think part three, except for instead of a, a train axle, it's a Transformer hitting the car, but it's the exact same footage just with a Transformer animated over it. Oh, I didn't realize He that. recycled destruction shots from the island into a Transformer sequel, so it didn't cost them a single thing other than the animation. Oh, wow. That's cool. I yeah. had no idea. That's a that's a smart move, though, from a cost-saving standpoint and to, to leverage footage that's probably an excellent money shot, yeah. right? To use oh, yeah. that over again is fantastic. Yeah, it's a great shot. I remember seeing the, that Transformers movie in theaters and thinking, I know that. Like, I knew the moment. <laughs> I, I recognized You're it. probably the only person in America that yeah. saw that and goes, I've seen that yeah. somewhere before. The only other time I can think of that this has happened, other than a bunch of smaller movies like Roger Corman and Full Moon, they will recycle their footage into other movies and make almost like a clip show film. That's happened before. But for a larger budget Hollywood film, it's not usual to take action moments from other movies. The only other example I can think of is in Dragon Ball Evolution, which was a big bomb. I don't know if it's Goku, but one of the characters has like a vision of a bunch of world destruction. There's a shot in it from Independence Day from the city destruction. And I recognized oh, wow. it. I, I did not realize. I remember that. snapping and pointing and being like, oh, no, that, that's Independence Day. Because I saw Independence Day 30 times in theaters. And that's not a weird hyperbolic exaggeration. Genuinely, 30 times. <laughs> so I know Independence wow. Day. The island didn't perform very well. It only made 60, I think. It was a really big bomb for Michael Bay. Because most of his movies up to that point, if not all of them, were hits. Yeah. Bad Boys Rock, Armageddon, they were all hits. Plus. Even Pearl Harbor made $200 million, right. But the island only made like 60. So I don't think they had a problem reusing the footage. Because who cares? I am crossing off the island. Okay. Let's talk about a good one, though. So the other example, other than Bad Boys 2, of what I would say is a perfect Michael Bay movie is Pain and Gain. And that's the one with Mark Wahlberg and Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, where they play bodybuilders who decide to scam a man out of his fortune by kidnapping him and torturing him and getting him to sign over all of his belongings. Pain and Gain is a true story. I was actually familiar with the case. I'd read a big old New Time story about it years prior. All of this really happened. And in the film, there's even a part where, where The Rock is grilling human hands on a barbecue grill outside, like in public. Yes. And it says on the bottom of the screen, this is still a true story. <laughs> part of the problem, though, this moral question is, they are making humorous entertainment out of the deaths of actual human beings. In the film, they make one of the characters' deaths seem like an accident. But in real life, they actually meant to kill him. They murdered him. And so right. they took an actual murder and made it like a humorous, uh-oh, that's a little, mm, I don't know. The movie, as a movie, if you ignore that, you know, relatives of people who died only, you know, 10, 20 years ago are able to watch a recreation of these deaths, that might be hurtful. But if I ignore that and just watch it as a film, it's exactly everything Michael Bay is good at. It's not an action movie. Just taking his sort of humor and his love of the bizarre, seeing humor in the bizarre, it's exactly what it needs to be. And these characters that he's adapting to film are jerks. You're not meant to like Mark Wahlberg in this. You're not meant to like The Rock. They are bad people. And I think embracing bad people is something Michael Bay is apparently very good at. Yeah, no, I agree with everything you just said. I think pain and gain, it is definitely a, uh, a true crime slash dark comedy, if you will. It's scuzzy. <laughs> yeah, it is scuzzy. Uh, removing the moral aspects of it, uh, I, I do feel like it was a great, great film. It's, it's definitely, you know, going to be on my list of my final three. It okay. is, I think, one of my favorite all-time true crime films ever, ever mm -hmm. made. I think it was fantastic. I, I just actually rewatched it recently. Great film, but again, there is a moral piece to it. Um, it's funny because the, it, it's a perfect definition of a movie that the story there is that Michael Bay leveraged his success as an action film director mm -hmm. 
to bargain with the studio to let him make pain and gain. He had a $40 million budget, which is next right. to nothing. He was coming off of Transformers movies that had multi-hundred million dollar budgets. Right. And he did this small film, this $40 million film, which granted, I, I would love $40 million. That's not small to me. But for a major film with major stars, that's a very low budget. Yep. And he wanted to do something small. I guess I'll just go back to saying small. And people could easily hate everything about it. Because the characters are not likable. What they're doing is not pleasurable. It's just the American greed in them. But you're not meant to like them. And I think that's that perfect balance. And intent has a lot to do with it. So Michael Bay's intent, he normally does movies that are over the top, arguably stupid, with characters that make dumb jokes at the wrong time. But in Pain and Gain, you are not meant to like these people. These are bad people doing bad things. And I think that excuses the Michael Bay humor, and actually works with it so well. If you can roll with that, if you can watch a whole movie where you hate everyone and the joy is that you hate them, it's perfect. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's a unique movie that likely would not have gotten made under normal the normal Hollywood system, right? It, mm-hmm. it's, I think the fact that he had to use that leverage speaks to the content as well. It was a good gamble. And it does still have the Michael Bay camera work, so there is a lot of visual style to the film. I could easily see somebody else making it with a much more straightforward look. This one, though, everything is sun-drenched, everyone is sweaty, lots of close-ups, very creative use of camera work. I think it works. We only have three left, so we have The Rock, Ambulance, and Pearl Harbor. I think it's pretty obvious which two would be crossed off first. For me, that's Ambulance and Pearl Harbor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, for me, when I think of World War II films, I I just, I feel like it was competing against Saving Private Ryan for some reason, and it just got slaughtered. You're slightly, you're slightly (laughs) off. It's not Saving Private Ryan. It's Titanic. That's why you have the love triangle with Ben Affleck, Josh Hartnett, and Kate Beckinsale. They wanted to make an action movie with the Titanic love story. They were chasing those James Cameron dollars. And this was his attempt at being legitimate and making an Oscar movie. Yeah, for me, it just wasn't a great war film. I think it even arguably ended the career of one of the main actors. What was his name? Well, Josh Hartnett Josh Hartnett didn't act as much after. I have no idea if it's because of Pearl Harbor. It has a really amazing, morally questionable, but really amazing attack sequence on Pearl Harbor. I don't know how well the animation has aged since then, but when it came out, it was incredible. Like, this was a yeah. great sequence. But it's not really an action movie. It has a part. And yes... They go off on another mission right afterwards, and there's some action, but not really. It's not really about that. And the focus of the movie on this love triangle, Michael Bay is not a subtle filmmaker. I don't think he has a romance in him. Right. For me, it just it definitely crossing it off. I like Ben Affleck, but there's nothing to like in that film. I don't know. I don't know if it was the director or the cast or the length. Maybe if it was an hour shorter. As far as Ambulance, the other one that you brought up, I think that the... The takeover of the bank, the actual robbery, was pretty cool. I think mm-hmm. I, I absolutely enjoyed that. The shootout out front, it felt violent, but not overly violent, but mm-hmm. enough to kind of keep tabs on what's happening. The rest of the film was just garbage. <laughs> um, for some reason, I just Jake Gyllenhaal being a just an unredeemable bad guy, I liked his performance. He always gives a good performance. He's a great actor, but... That's not how I want to see Jake Gyllenhaal, if that makes sense. Well, I think part of the problem is the Michael Bayness of it, because he's not playing a likable character. It's a desperate, pushy thief, because it's about two guys robbing a bank, and they steal an ambulance to escape. Right. And even during like a chase sequence, Jake Gyllenhaal makes an STT joke. 
I remember watching the film in theaters and thinking, okay, why is this in the film? <laughs> right. You know? But he's a little too one note. Like it's just half smile. Oh, nothing's going to bother me, even though I'm being chased by cops. It's a little tiring. And also too, Ambulance is a remake. It's a remake of like a Dutch film, I think. Oh, I didn't realize. That. Yeah. It's an hour longer than the original, which goes back to the idea of Michael Bay and Pearl Harbor and actually all of his movies. We didn't touch on that too much, but all of his movies are too long. Yeah, just getting like the mafia involved or whatever to help him escape. Like I just, or whatever that was. I I don't mind that. I mean, that's at least story. But why is it a full hour longer than the film it's remaking? It was right. two hours and 20 minutes. Michael Bay knows how to film movies. He knows how to make movies. He's obviously very skilled. But Ambulance has so many drone shots. It's like he discovered a new toy. So many freaking drone shots where I was just getting so frustrated and annoyed. I'm going to cross Ambulance off my list. Yeah, that's, that's an easy one for me too. I would say The Rock is an action classic. It's one of those movies in the same breath as Face Off or yeah. maybe even Con Air, although people might be cringing at that. I love Con Air. It's dumb, but in the perfect way. <laughs> but The Rock is so good. It's the movie that created Nicolas Cage, the action star. Seeing that, my first impression seeing The Rock was... I don't remember Nicolas Cage being this buff. <laughs> that was my initial reaction to it. Yeah, he was coming off his Oscar for Leaving Las Vegas, and he was in an action movie? Yeah. Like, what? What's going on here? What's kind of neat is that Ed Harris isn't just a one-note villain. He's not a mwahaha villain. When push comes to shove, he chooses not to fire the chemical at them. He's bluffing. He doesn't want to kill civilians. Right. But a few of his men still want to, like Tony Todd and a couple others. They still want to go ahead with it. They want to make a point and possibly murder, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to get what they want. It's just a small detail, but it's kind of neat that a villain isn't just tunnel vision. He actually has what he feels is a moral reason for what he's doing. He decides to not be a murderer. It's still a dumb action movie in the end, but at least the villain has a little more nuance. And it's Ed Harris, who's always great. Nicolas Cage is good in it. Uh, he added a bunch of weird quirks. Supposedly, he rewrote some of the script. So all of the talk in the film about buying like a vinyl album, that's all Nicolas Cage just making yeah, stuff that's up. That's interesting. He's like, I really think my character should be into vinyl. You know? <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. That's cool. The shaky cam is crazy. As I mentioned before, that's the first movie where I really noticed shaky cam being a problem to the point where I kind of hated it. Still not totally a fan, but The Rock is super solid, man. It's a very classic, at this point classic because it's the 90s, but it's a classic 90s action film. It's on the same level as Armageddon. Um, those two films, I have them both circled right now. I'm not saying they're going to be on my final list. I definitely feel like they stand out. They stand on their own. They're memorable films that are part of our culture. Not to say that you can't keep both, but between The Rock and Armageddon, which one would you pick? If you could pick just one of those two. If I had to choose just one of those two, I would likely choose The Rock. Okay, me too. Same thing. Yeah. Now, you can still keep Armageddon. Obviously, you're saving three. Right. I've got five on my list still. Um, really? I think we have the same five, actually. So I'm going to say real quick, very easily for me, I'm crossing off Armageddon and I'm crossing off 13 Hours. I'm going to cross off Armageddon and I'm going to keep The Rock on the list for now. So total, I have The Rock, Bad Boys 2, Pain and Gain in 13 Hours. I still have to eliminate one of those. Right. If you had those four, Aaron, which one would you Well, eliminate? I did have those four. We had the exact same final five, <laughs> and I crossed off 13 hours because there's no character or plot or really anything else to get behind other than it's a really cool two and a half hour sequence. 
Right. For those four, I'm going to actually cross off The Rock. Classic. Okay. Great film. Always going to have a special place in my childhood and in my heart. Um, But for me, my final three would be Pain and Gain, Bad Boys 2, and 13 Hours. As for me, now playing this week at Valley West Cinemas are Pain and Gain, Bad Boys 2, and The Rock. What do you think? Find us on Twitter and let us know, or on Instagram. As always, I'm your host, Aaron. I was joined today by Sean. Thanks for listening.